next part of this is sort of Christy and I doing I Have a Patient, which is you telling us patients and problems that you have. So feel free to ask questions of either of us or share your difficult. Ken. Getting, I'm sorry, getting more than the other one very, very quickly. Like in a living donor situation, um, there are some centers that do living donors, uh, you would treat before get the infection cleared before you do that. Okay. And actually, our grand rounds this week is from a, the liver transplant program at Leahy, and I guess he had talked a little bit about. Um, I know you said this is kind of experimental, but kind of doing the hep C positive organs, hep C negative. Mm -hmm. so I guess, do you see that like changing in the near future, next mm -hmm. few years? Because, you know, from us, it's kind of like I'm still referring people to a melded more than 10, but I don't know if that's going to change, especially with the. Right, right. So, the status of that right now, I mean, to sort of a year, a little over a year ago, group of the, the, the American Transplant uh, Society, TS, um, met and came out with a statement saying this can be tried, it should be done only under experimental conditions. At the same, and, and At the same time, our center became probably the first one in the country that started using uh, HCV EIA positive nat negative organs in HCV negative recipients. So, in it was in 2016, UNOS began doing that testing on the donors using both EIA and nucleic acid testing. We published our results this past year of that group, and 16% uh, and transmitted hep C in liver transplant. So, so, and then we cured all of them afterwards. In the meantime, Johns Hopkins reported the first study of taking the HCV known positive, EIA positive, not positive, in 10 patients initially, and then treating them afterwards. And then that was duplicated at 10 in both livers and kidneys since then. Um, and, uh, 
member of the people who wrote the article saying this should only be done under protocol went back to their own centers knowing that some of these studies were coming out and started doing it without a protocol. So now there have been experiences in probably 30 to 50 centers in the U.S. doing this simply because the surgeon said, I'm going to do it if they're doing it, and they start doing it. And uh, so far, there's no accumulation of all of those things. Um, there are two multi-center studies that uh, that are going on. Well, actually, one hasn't started, the other one is in progress to look at this in a large, larger set and see what's, what's the story. Um, we're doing it under protocol. We've done three so far, and uh, they're, they've all been cured afterwards. So, uh, I mean, details need to be worked out because some of the people are doing, doing uh, treatment before, like preemptive treatment, as soon as you can take oral meds. Some are waiting until first sign of virus recurrence. What's the best way to do this remains unclear. There's some evidence that some insurers are going to balk at this because it's still expensive. Um, and uh, the ethicists continue to hem and haw about it, and there's not a clear answer yet. So uh, I think that, that there'll probably be an accumulation of enough cases in the not-too-distant future with good outcomes that it will simply become the standard of care in these organs will be routinely used. Sorry, it's a long answer no, to it, but it should be a simple yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. So, very few patients say no. When people's melds get up to the 22-ish range, people are pretty sick. Their lives kind of suck. I mean, encephalopathy, recurrent taps, uh, refractory ascites, going into kidney failure, um, we stop them from driving cars because of the encephalopathy, and so then they get variceal bleeding and end up in the ICU. There's a lot going on, and offered the chance to get an organ sooner um, and take a chance that 4%, 5%, even 10% that it won't be curable after transplant. Um, is something most patients will take. I, I don't know. We've been offering those uh, um, the EIA positive, not negative organs to patients for the last almost two years. I don't know that we've had hardly any, if any at all, refused to be on the offer list for those <coughs> organs. <coughs> What would you do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
other questions? Anyone want to go? So the, the patient that you presented that had like sort of a uh, in in between indeterminate fibrosis or cirrhosis. Yeah. It, it sounds like you mostly just would recommend doing a biopsy in that case. You know. Or or it depends where it depends where you're at and what's your availability of those services. Yeah. Um, and you discuss it with your patient. I mean, I yeah. I like to know the answer and provide the best guidance to the patient. Um, treating that patient would not have been wrong. Mm -hmm. You looked compensated when you went into it and you could assume that and you know, one approach would have been you would have gotten the EGD and if the patient had varices, you would have said, oh, now I'm pretty sure this patient is psoriatic. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, this case this is a real case, but mm -hmm. this was probably four years ago. Today, I'm not sure I would have done the biopsy because the drugs have gotten that much better since 2013 14. Um, I, think, I think not doing the biopsy would have been okay. The one place where I do think still about biopsies a lot is the ones that have more than one disease process going on. Uh, the patient that I strongly suspect has NASH and Hep C. Um, I'm going to treat the Hep C, but then I'm going to still have to deal with the NASH in that patient. And uh, knowing where we're at and what we can do might be helpful. I might have to get a biopsy later after curing them anyways. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I think that gets individualized. But as I said, we're doing 10 times less biopsies than we were previously. Mm -hmm. I think if you're not going to biopsy, you would treat for the more conservative, okay. right? Well, treat, more conservative. well, treat as though they're cirrhotic, yes. yeah. Right. With the longer treatment yeah. and then you're also stuck with them, the and, and the screening same thing. after. Right, right. The, right. Which you probably would have done, because he seems kind of epic. My slides were yeah. screwed up, but there was also a couple of slides on the genotype 1 issue, because a 1A uh -huh. may be treated differently than a 1B, and uh, in this patient, you couldn't tell, you would assume the worst. So if right. you don't know the answer, assume the worst. Okay, yeah. Anybody want to share a case or you have a question? Uh, okay. No question, whatever. Um, so say you're treating someone with compensated cirrhosis in the planetary setting and then they go into compensated cirrhosis, like what's the best course of action there? Don't stop your don't stop your therapy okay. and call for help. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I mean obviously I'll call for help, but uh, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, you're not gonna break therapy unless there's a reason to think that that maybe the drug contributed to that. So if it was a PI-based regimen and and they just decompensated, <coughs> mm, I might stop the therapy then, but uh, knowing that I could come in later with something else. It doesn't happen that often, thankfully. <laughs> Very rare. 
that I, what I feel like happens more often is I get a decompensated patient I want to send to someone like Ken, and they just won't go. They just keep coming back to me <laughs> as their HIV provider. And, you know, at some point I have treated those people because they feel like they're just never going to go to liver transplant, and they do get some benefit, right, Ken? I mean, in terms of both how they feel in their lab. So the decompensated patients, mm -hmm. if you cure them, um, many of them will decrease their MELD, but some enter, yeah. people use different names, but MELD hell, MELD purgatory, <laughs> because they fall to a MELD that will never get them a liver, but they never feel better. Yeah. So that's, that's the danger in doing that. If you know up front that they're absolutely not going to be a transplant candidate. So I had one of these this past Wednesday in my clinic. It's, it's a woman who has, uh, has advanced cervical cancer. She's, she's been treated. She's had radiation and chemo. Her life expectancy is actually four or five years. Um, and she was cirrhotic. And we made a decision to treat her hep C. She'll never be transplanted. And I don't want her to decompensate because, because she can't be transplanted. A patient with metastatic cancer can't undergo the immunosuppression because any cancer would wake up and look crazy. Any residual cancer is there. So because she wasn't cured in five years out, She'll never be transplanted, but maybe I can keep her from decompensating by treating now. And that was the decision we made. We made the decision Wednesday, and uh, and we got we got drugs this morning. I got a message about it. So um, so yes, you would treat someone like us. Yeah. if they have both hepatitis B and C. So I think it's, you know, in that case, I start by checking both of the viral loads, right? And if they have hepatitis B that's above the threshold for treatment, so they're surface antigen positive and their DNA is detectable, and, you know, they, so once you, their DNA is detectable, they either kind of, there's cutoffs on how high the viral load is and whether the enzymes are abnormal and things that kind of lump them into treatment or not treatment. So if they meet criteria for treatment, Definitely treat the Hep B, and I'd probably treat that first. Get them started on the treatment at least before I treated the Hep C, just because of this knowing this issue of flares can occur. I mean, um, and then I guess where there's a little more of a question is the people who are surface antigen positive, but their DNA is below the threshold for treatment, and that's where some people have different. So I, approaches. I, do, I do treat all of those because some yeah. of those have fallen into the flare group right. and so I will treat them um, so the knowing that, well, so the issue is, is are you going to plan to treat them forever or are you going to plan to yeah. treat them to her six yeah. months right. after they complete your hep C treatment and those patients are more likely to think about stopping um, so, I think you can go either way with those. Uh, this is where actually looking at your ALTs against the levels I told you are important because, because if 
the ALT is elevated, and after you treat um, the Hep C, well, no, you've got to make the decision before. Yeah, I, that's a tough one. If, if there are signs of inflammation in those patients, I would just treat them. I, I mean, I think the Hep B treatments are so safe. Yeah. You know, there's not a lot of downside. I think a person, you could have the discussion with them then whether to stop or to continue lifelong if they didn't meet the original criteria. If they meet the original criteria, it's pretty easy. Or if they have HIV, it's pretty easy, right? Just include TAF or TDF in their regimen and no more to think about. It's just making sure no one ever takes them off of it, which sometimes happens. <laughs> so the other comment about that is, you know, again, we have guidelines with criteria. The AASLD guidelines for treatment are the strictest in the world in terms of decision criteria. Um, the Apostle guidelines, where they actually have more Hep B than any other you know, within the auspices of their membership uh, than anyone else in the world, say any elevation of ALT you treat. Regardless of viral load. Regardless of viral load. And part of that comes from this very famous REVEAL trial. The REVEAL trial was done in Taiwan. It looked at the linkage between HPV DNA and uh, development of liver cancer. And there was a measurable increase in liver cancer at even the lowest levels of detection of 200 international units um, when that study was done. That there was a measurable, statistically significant increased risk of developing liver cancer. So, suppression appears to not eliminate, but mitigate that risk at any level. And uh, in many places in the world now, uh, any level of HPV DNA is detected. And what do you use? 25 for women and 35 for men, or 30 and 19? What do you I, use? I use the 19 and 30. Uh, Christy's asking that because in a reanalysis of data and another consensus committee from the American Gastroenterologic Association, a consensus group, just said that the numbers should be slightly higher than that. It should be 20. Five for women and 34, I think, for exactly. So, but. But the important point is it's not the 45 that your lab right. probably has as the upper limit of normal. That's not normal. Yeah. An ALT that's 35 to 45 is not normal for anyone, um, male or female. And women should even be a little lower than that. So it's, those are the ones I think sometimes just get over overlooked. And, 19 and 30. 19 for women, 30. There was, I a, think there was I'm a really nice study from Mindy Lynn at Stanford. She took Hep B patients, a large group of Hep B patients, with normal ALTs in her lab, and she biopsied them all. And she also found that if you use the 19 and 30, that that was the cutoff for actually seeing evidence on biopsy of liver injury in Hep B patients. So mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty reasonable. I'm going to wrap up. We'll be here for a few minutes for questions, but I want to give people a lot of time. You guys were so amazing, and um, thanks for sticking through the, to the final end. So you can get credit from various um, sources for this. So there were e instructions emailed to you. Fill out the, are they PIFs? Yeah, post-training These are really important for your local um, credits for participating in this for the AATC. It helps 
keep things like this possible. Um, so the maintenance of certification takes a little extra step, but the, um, which I know those points are very important to people, so make sure you check the email on how to do that exactly. Um, give it a day or two for the cases to be available, and we love feedback on what could be better about these courses as well. The next, there are webinar series if you like this. A lot of the same people who do these in-person things have um, updates. There's one coming on the liver meeting. Ooh, I'm going to watch this. I wonder what, oh, December 4th, okay. So we'll have all the updates from the liver meeting. Um, there's also uh, other resources and topics in antiviral medicine. And so thank you all for your attention.